According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 24 is our passage. We ought to be able to wrap up Matthew 24 and get our first look at Matthew 25 today. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 500. There is no verse 500, but if you, uh, if you type in, in Logos Bible software, if you type in verse 500, it takes you to the end of the chapter. So I do that a lot. And then uh, I don't, that way I don't have to memorize that there's 51 verses in chapter 24 and there's 39 verses in chapter 23 and there's 46 verses in chapter 21. I just type verse 500 and or 100, takes me to the end of the chapter. All right. Matthew 24. The imperative to be on the alert. Be on the alert. And uh, sad that in our generation, uh, very few believers are on the alert. Very few believers are living mindfully of the doctrine of imminency. Very few believers have any awareness of the plan of God. And they're just uh, plugging along in their temporal life, fat, dumb, and happy, like the days of Noah, marrying, giving and marriage, eating and drinking, and uh, living temporal life. So let's take a look at it today. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege we have to assemble together. And Father, we commit to You all things on this day for Your uh, good pleasure, for the glory of Your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we have much to pray over, much to rejoice over, uh, the fires that are still raging. And, and yet, uh, Father, You have preserved property, You preserve life. And uh, Father, we continue to uh, rest in You in Your gracious provision. Father, uh, now as we study your word, we ask for all distractions to be set aside, hedge us about, protect us. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, Dan, you're the bouncer until further notice. All right. <laughs> if something happens, you've got to deal with it. Now, we are, we've dealt with the three questions, and last week we looked at the parable, parable of the fig tree under point 11. So... Let me just take a guess on what slide we're dealing with here. Wasn't that one? Remember the questions are, in verse 3, what will be, when will these things happen? That's question number one. What will be the sign of your coming? That's question number two. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? That's question number three. And they're numbered 1, 2, and 3 based upon the order that the disciples asked them. They are actually asked in a, in a poor, poorly ordered, uh, ordered way. The Lord, when He answers, will answer them in a much better order. And uh, it's important that you understand that. I think the, the biggest uh, blessing you can have in this chapter is to outline the order that the Lord uh, gives to these questions. And the fact that uh, one of these questions He ignores in Matthew 24, you have to go to Luke to get the, uh, the answer to uh, when will these things happen. In other words, the tearing down of the temple and not one stone left upon another. 
uh, when will these things happen? Everything related to 70 A.D. is not recorded in Matthew 24. It's recorded over in Luke. And so in the process of giving you these answers, uh, we gave you under point 8 the answer to question number 3. Under point 9, the Lord's answer to question number 1. And then under point 10, the Lord's answer to question number 2. What will be the sign of your coming? And so I hope everyone that's been a part of this study can answer this question to anyone who might ask. What is the sign of the end of the age? It's a sign to Israel. It's a sign to Jerusalem. A sign to Israel of the end of the age. What is that sign? It's the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. The abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Still future in Jesus' time frame. The uh, sign of, of His coming is after the sun, moon, and stars are darkened and then a single sign appears in the sky, the sign of the Son of Man. That is the sign of His coming. And uh, that happens after the tribulation of those days. And it's not complicated. You look at verse 29. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days. All right? So when do you think that's going to take place? (laughs) I think it's going to take place immediately after the tribulation of those days. Okay, this passage has tremendous precision to it. This passage spells out a whole lot of circumstances, but it says that's not yet the end. That's not yet the end. That's not yet the end. And then it says, then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, let the reader understand. And so it is it's just it's sad, truly, uh, the the non literal approaches to this chapter, the non-dispensational approaches to this chapter, the the poor uh, theology that gets created because of the poor hermeneutics in in dealing with this. Well, all of that is material we've covered. We go from question number two then to a couple of parables. In fact, more than a couple. Uh, Two parables here, the fig tree uh, and then the, uh, the imperative to be on the alert that will close out chapter 24. And then the, the ten virgins in 25, the talents that follow that in 25, and the sheep of goat judgment in 25. We'll deal with those here in our next episode. In a lot of ways, uh, we can include those on with Matthew 24 all in a single episode and just call it Mount Olivet Discourse. All right? And if I was the one doing the harmony of the Gospels, I might be tempted to do that. But the harmony we're adapting has actually separated Matthew 24 with Matthew 25. And I understand why they did that. I don't have an issue with that. Um, because the material in Matthew 24 has parallel records in Mark and Luke. Uh, Matthew 25 sits on its own. And so we'll be dealing with Matthew 25 here. And, uh, well, some of it will have parallel in Mark and Luke. So we'll talk about that when we get into the next episode. You'll understand why we don't just have a single episode called Mount Olivet Discourse. We have two episodes and uh, dealing with them like that. Now, parable of the fig tree. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 41, Mark 13, 28 through 32, Luke 21, 29 through 33. Subpoint A, the fig tree is perhaps the easiest parable our Lord ever taught. When the, summer, when the leaves appear on the fig tree, summer is near. All right, any questions? <laughs> there it is. Are there leaves on the tree? All right, summer is near. Even, uh, even a city boy like me that didn't grow up on a farm ought to be able to figure that out. The sign of the end, the great tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man, as those things all start falling into place one after another, after another, after another, it ought to be obvious that the end is near. They've seen all these things unfold. The sun, moon, and stars have fallen from the sky. The sign of the Son of Man has appeared in the sky. 
that ought to be as obvious for anybody that Jesus Christ is near, right near, right at the door. It ought to be as simple as looking on the branches of a fig tree and seeing if there's a leaf there or not. All right? The imminence of Jesus' second coming are undeniable. Clearly, this generation, point C, this generation of chapter 24 is not the same as this generation of chapter 23. And we took you through that last week as well. More confusion arises when people lock in on the expression, this generation, and uh, they insist that it has to be the uh, scribes and Pharisees hypocrites that he was speaking to back in chapter 23. No. In the context of chapter 23, that is who he's talking to, and that is the scope of this generation spoken of in that chapter. But that's not the case here in this cha- in chapter 24. In chapter 24, he's left that realm entirely, and he's looked forward to a future time after the abomination of desolation, after the tribulation of those days, after the uh, sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky. And that has to be the context for the this generation statement of, uh, of verse 24. And in a lot of ways... This generation of 23 is shadow typology for the, this generation of, of chapter 24. The generation that saw the Romans destroy Jerusalem in, in 70 A.D. is typology for the generation that will see Jerusalem surrounded by eschatological Rome, Antichrist, as uh, taught here in Matthew 24. So one of them pre- prefigures the other. We have foreshadowing and fulfillment. And the, the phrase this generation is used in both applications. Now finally, the last thing we want to deal with with the parable of the fig tree is Noah's flood. We need to understand it because uh, it gets mistaught and because we've had previous teaching related to this in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. And so the wheat and the tares, as it were, in Matthew 13:30. So the last subpoint under 11 will be subpoint D. Noah's flood is a vital hermeneutic for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Let's look at it again, verses 37 through 39. <clears throat> it follows the statement of ignorance in verse 36. Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. It was withheld from their awareness until such time as it could be revealed. Part of the Father's wisdom in withholding things in mystery. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then if it might help us, let's go ahead and restate uh, just like the days of Noah from verse 37 and restate that phrase not only in verse 38, Uh, but also in verse 39, also in verse 40, and you'll see what I'm doing here. So uh, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving a marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And unfortunately, a lot of people stop their comparison there. And they stop the comparison with the days of Noah to the social life and temporal life living uh, that's described there in verse 38. But let's take it beyond verse 38. Because, really, when has there been a generation that has not been eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage? You know, point me to the century where that didn't take place. Point me to the, yeah, point me to the era of, of human history where, uh, Doug, where uh, that people didn't eat or people didn't drink or people didn't get married or children weren't born. Okay? Now, 
Likewise, in verse 39, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So even when judgment is imminent, even when destruction is upon them, the very day that judgment is upon them, they are still in their oblivious condition. And uh, that too will be the circumstance in the, uh, in the, uh, tribula- at the, end, the end of the tribulation prior to the second advent of Jesus Christ. They'll have no clue. You understand. It's like today. How much divine discipline does our nation have to go through today with hurricanes and floods and droughts and everything else and earthquakes and you name it and uh, our believers in our country realizing that that our nation is under the hand of god's discipline are we humbling ourselves are we getting serious about our christian walk then there will be now as it was in the days of noah the, uh, there will be two men in the field one will be taken and one will be left Now, don't forget that in the days of Noah, there was a taking and there was a leaving. And that's why the days of Noah is a hermeneutic for this uh, second advent episode. The flood took away unbelievers and left believers on this earth. That's the context for this. And so we've got to understand there's more. The people that just jump and say, oh, this is a rapture passage here fail to identify that the text itself tells us that this is as it was in the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, there was a taking and a leaving. And so when we see there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, or two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. This is not a rapture context. In fact, it's the opposite of the rapture, if you think about it. The rapture, believers are taken. Removed from the earth, brought into heaven. Where I am, there you will be also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, for I go, as I go to heaven, to prepare a place for you. And when I return, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, heaven, there you will be with me also. And so we understand that. Then when Jesus Christ comes, when Jesus Christ comes for his bride, he doesn't come all the way to the earth. He, meets, he comes, he descends to the clouds. We meet him in the air. Why do we meet him in the air? Because he's not coming all the way to the earth. And he's taking us back. All right? And just like all the bridal imagery we have in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, the, uh, the, the groom is going to go and fetch his bride. And he's going to take his bride back to where, uh, where it is that, uh, that they're going to honeymoon. All right? Now, um, so one will be taken, one will be left. Matthew uh, 24, verse 40 at the moment. Two men in the field, two women grinding at the mill. So this is not rapture imagery. This is flood imagery. The flood took away the unbelievers. The taking and leaving must be interpreted in light of this imagery and not confused with rapture of the church in any way. Now, let's turn over to Matthew 13 and take a look. Just back up a few chapters to Matthew 13 and remind ourselves of what the Lord taught us when we were going through these parables. Tares among the wheat. And um, looking at verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. 
But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Now remember, uh, this is kingdom of heaven uh, in mystery form being, uh, being taught. Kingdom of heaven, mystery. These are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so we relate that there is church age application to be made here, but there's also dispensation of Israel application to be made here. And uh, clearly this, this uh, tear uh, procedure that the adversary does, sowing tares among the wheats, uh, the wheat, he's been doing this throughout the church age. That's, that is true. He will also continue to do this activity after the church age during the tribulation. He will sow tares among the wheat there as well, as he will send in agents among Christians, among born-again believers, Jew and Gentile alike. He will send in tares there to spy out their liberty. He will send in tares there to expose those that are not taking the mark of the beast and other, uh, and other things. Uh, remember when we taught kingdom of heaven mystery, we were teaching the period of time between the rejection of the Christ and the acceptance of the Christ. And so that, that means we have the, the, we're going to encompass the church age, but we're also going to encompass the tribulation of Israel. We're going to encompass the, uh, the final, uh, you know, the final six months of Jesus' earthly ministry from his national rejection to where he's crucified, to his 40 days of resurrection ministry, to the entirety of the church age, to the tribulation after the church age. All right. All of this in between the rejection of the king and the acceptance of the king is the kingdom of heaven mystery state. You want more on that? There's hours and hours of that back in Matthew 13. Now, uh, so while his men were sleeping, in other words, you're not on the alert. The imperative we're going to study today is Gregoreo, be on the alert. And while theology gets sloppy, while churches get lazy, while, while uh, pastors get complacent, while uh, congregations are failing their prosperity testing, the adversary has room to work. And he comes while his men were sleeping. All right. But now, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Interesting. Sprouting and bearing grain. They're fruit bearing. The adversary is also fruit bearing. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. See, the father is not the only one sowing. The adversary is a counterfeit father, and he sows as well. So they said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the same, in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, now pay attention to this, because this is not rapture either. Uh, we understand wheat and tares has a church application, but after the church is gone, wheat and tares also has a tribulational application, and that's what we ought to be looking at here. The harvest is second advent. The harvest is tribulation followed by second advent. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. Now, this is the taking some will be taken, some will be left. The taking will be, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. That's taking. Taking is the unbelievers being thrown into the fire. Burn them up. They're thrown into hell. No unbeliever will, will enter into the millennium of Jesus Christ. They will be gathered up. They will be taken and burned. And who will be left? One woman will be left. One man will be left. Gather the wheat into my barn. This is the, those that are left. They are gathered into the barn. That is, they are left on earth to enter into the millennium, into the barn of this, uh, of this metaphor. So we have taking and leaving here as well. 
the, the, the one will be taken, one will be left. And the one taken is not a believer spared from wrath, but an unbeliever thrown into the fire. And the one that's left is the believer that will be gathered into the barn for uh, the millennial blessings of, of what follows. Any question on that? The, uh, the days of Noah taking and leaving. Unbelievers are taken. Believers are left. Second advent taking and leaving. Unbelievers are taken. Believers are left. The uh, parable of the wheat and tares. Unbelievers are taken and burned. Believers are left. Gathered into the barn. Um, that's the pattern every single time except the rapture. In the rapture, it's believers who are taken. Believers who are harpazo snatched and launched into heaven. The, the rapture is the only taking and leaving episode whereby it is redeemed saints that are taken, leaving the unbelievers to, to uh, the unrestrained ministry of Antichrist in the, in the tribulation. The rapture is the exception to the rule. Very unique way. All right. So, two men in the field, two women in grinding, and there it is. Now, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Therefore be on the alert. Point 12 in your outline, the imperative to be alert. The imperative to be alert. We've already seen just a moment ago in the parable of the wheat and the tares, and it was while they were sleeping that the uh, enemy was able to sow his seed. Be on the alert. I might also mention that Adam had the imperative to be on the alert. Adam was commanded to cultivate the garden and to keep it, to guard it, to shamer. And uh, I, I think the presence of the serpent there is indicative of some negligence on, uh, on Adam's part related to that. Had Adam been more on the alert, perhaps uh, that episode would have had a different uh, outcome related to different things. All right, therefore, be on the alert. That's not a helpful hint. That's not a tip. That's not a suggestion. That is a command. We are continuously, all day, every day, to be on the alert. The verb is gregoreo. We'll spell that out for you here in a moment. That's where the name Gregory comes from. And uh, so many of the, there were a number of early popes that all were Gregory. Uh, the first, I think seven of them. Gregory the seventh and, and uh, was very significant. Maybe there were some after him, but... Uh, Gregory the first, Gregory the seventh, I know, jump out at me as being very prominent in uh, the history of the Roman Church. Uh, well, the, the name is assumed because of their watchfulness, because of their uh, diligence on, in being on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. No one knows. The Son of Man, the angels in heaven, only the Father. And since we don't know, since we don't have a calendar, we need to be on the alert. Now, let me first of all say this has direct application to Second Advent. This is not for us. We're not looking for any of these things. But we do have an application to make, and we do have imperatives to be on the alert elsewhere. Okay? And so because we have imperatives to be on the alert, we can make secondary application of the text that we have here. This is teaching the doctrine of imminency. We have our own application of imminency to make as it pertains to the rapture. So we, we're not going to be on the alert for the second advent. We're not going to be on the alert for... Um, the days of Noah. We're not going to be on the alert for the sign of the Son of Man. Uh, we're not going to be on the alert for the abomination of desolation. We're not on the alert for Antichrist. But we are on the alert. 
and more so because we have no signs that will lead up to to our status. We're already there. We're already at the alert status. And so we must be diligent. We must be diligent. The day and the hour of Christ's second advent is only known by God the Father. The day and the hour of Christ's second advent is only known by God the Father. It says that in verse 36. That's indicated here as well in verses 42 through 44. Now at the moment Jesus spoke this, He was still in His earthly incarnation. He was still in His humility. Um, I was asked, do I think that was that's the case now? Is He still ignorant now, seated at the right hand of the Father? Uh, or was there some point of time after His ascension when He was seated that uh, He was granted this? Does He know today, for example, uh, when this is going to be? I believe He does. I believe that, that where He had laid aside His privileges, that activity ended when He ascended to the Father, was presented before the Father in victory. Uh, Jesus asked the Father, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. And in fact, the Father not only restored that glory, but actually bestowed upon Him greater glory bestowed upon him a name above every name that has been given. And so I think together with that, the kenosis is complete in that, um, that he has, once again, his full use of, his full omniscience and all the, the uh, intimacy with the Father and the, the complete plan today. But when he spoke these words in Matthew 24, this was still a true, uh, a true statement. The day and the hour of Christ's second advent is only known by God the Father. And so... You know, people today that write these books and claim that they know these dates. They claim that they know these, when it's, the Bible says, no one knows. And, and the most clever of them, I'll tell you this, there's a, there's a boy I grew up with who went to uh, seminary same time I did. Right? There were three of us at that time. Three young men, 21 years old, all said, I've got the gift to pastor teacher. And uh, two of them went to Multnomah in Portland and, and I came here. Um, but one of them actually has specialized on this for the last 20 years. And this has been his focus of research, and this has been his his uh, his his, his whole study has been consumed in this realm. And he's done a lot of work on it, very valuable, useful work on it. But what breaks my heart is when he crosses the line and starts to date the date, and and uh, I'm convinced he can't do that. Now he's got an explanation for this. No one knows, and I find it's interesting. It's it's. Um, it's uh, he realizes it's a weakness of his of his entire thesis. And so he addresses it. He says, yes, this is a weakness, but here's the answer. And so he believes he's got a, a, uh, an answer for it. And, uh, and I think that it's, uh, it's weak. So in any event, um, it, that's what that is. But how many believers are doing that? Not just him. I'm not, I'm not criticizing him, but I'm, I'm saying that a lot of believers are wrapped up in trying to date the rapture. And the whole point is, is that because it's not dateable, Day by day, moment by moment, we're living as if it's today. We've got to live with that principle of imminency, as if it's today. Okay. Under any application of imminency, any application of imminency, the primary imperatives are watchfulness and readiness. Watchfulness and readiness. That's why I'm glad God's given us this doctrine of readiness here not too long ago. Under any application of imminency, and the Bible has several of them, the primary imperatives are watchfulness and readiness. We see it here 
Therefore, be on the alert. In verse 42 and in verse 44, for this reason you must also be ready. Hetwemazo and the imperative of Hetwemas. Ganesta Hetwemas. Now, as, as, as I said, this is not a rapture passage. But because the church has the imminent expectation of the rapture, we are living under an imminency application. Are we clear on that? All right. The second advent for Israel. Once the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, they, are, they will at that time operate under an imminency application. Are we clear on that? <laughs> okay. And their application of imminency is not our application of imminency, but they are both applications of imminency, and so there are similarities, and we draw these principles together for our understanding. Make sense? All right. Now, prior to the sun, moon, and stars falling and the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky, prior to that, are, is Israel under an application of imminency? Yeah, the end of the age, the end of the age, right. They're not under a principle of imminency until the sign appears in heaven. And the reason why is because they've got so many other things and a sequence of so many other things to be looking for. And so they've got all of the beginning of birth pangs that are going to lead up to the birth pangs. And so they have those things, and as they watch those, they're not really under imminency because the sign hasn't appeared in the, in the sky yet. And, and the, uh, the abomination of desolation hasn't appeared in the, in the temple yet. Or even the, the, the seven-year covenant itself hasn't taken place yet. I think there's going to be believers with insight. They're going to see that treaty sign, and they're going, to, they're going to know right then and right there. And they're going to be able to start counting 1,260 days for the first three and a half years. Then they'll see the betrayal, and then they'll be able to start counting. But see, remember, they can't count that second 1,260 days because those get cut short. Now, so they're not under imminency in the beginning of birth pangs. They're not under imminency in the birth pangs. They're not under imminency in the tribulation. But after the tribulation of those days, when the sun, moon, and stars are, are thrown down, when the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, now they're under imminency. Realize now, understand the parable of the fig tree, realize now that Jesus Christ is standing at the door. He is near right at the door. Okay? Then they're under a principle of imminency. And only then are they under a principle of imminency. Now, uh, I said there are several. Besides the rapture and the second heaven of Israel, what other applications of imminency does the Bible describe? Thought about that at all? Do you think the days of Noah? Do you think the days of Noah was an application of imminency? We know that he preached for an entire year, but did he know it was going to be a year at that time? Did the people know it was going to be a year? As he was building that ark, did he know how many days he had left? Did the people know how many days he had left? We don't either, no. Um, scripture doesn't say, but the, 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 uh, I believe the death of Methuselah was the sign. And uh, this was how the rabbis taught it, and this is how I think the Scripture bears it out. He died the very year of the 
when you, when you add up his age and his 969th year and when he died, that that was the indicator of the, of the, uh, of the flood. And uh, the rabbinic tradition is that was the very day of the flood that he died. And with his death, the Lord said, all right, get him on the boat and close the door. Okay. Anyway, operating in the principles of imminency, I think there was also imminency as it pertained to the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ, all this expectation. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. When would that happen? Well, you have 69 sevens to start counting from the issuing of a decree. And they know they're in the 69th. They know they're in the... I mean, they know they, they're counting 65, 66, 67. They're getting closer. All right. Just even for the birth. Even for the birth. Right. Now, week 69 ends with the crucifixion of the Christ, but he obviously has to be born prior to that. So as these sevens were being counted by Israel, there was this expectation, this expectation. And it's, it's interesting. You read the apocryphal literature, the intertestamental literature, you know, because their they're Bible closed with Malachi. But you get all of these apocalypses being written and all of these other uh, uh, expectation of the imminent arrival of the Christ. They were living under imminency. And then the sign of, the, of the, the birth appears and it brings the Magi from the east. We saw his sign. So there was an application of imminency. And uh, so the flood, the first advent, rapture, second event, there's at least those four and possibly additional applications of imminency that, uh, that could be looked at. Now, the, um, the primary imperatives are watchfulness and readiness. And that's what we see here. Let's start with watchfulness. Subpoint one, Gregoreo. Gregoreo. 22 New Testament uses. G-R-E, that's the long E of the Ada. So gamma rho Ada. Gamma, Doug. G-R-E-G-O-R-E-O. G-R-E. G-O-R-E-O. Gregoreo. Number 1127. Has 22 New Testament uses. Uh, the bulk of them are in Matthew and Mark. Uh, in the New Testament, we've got several Pauline uses. 1 Peter 5.8 might jump out at you. As uh, Peter's only use on it. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. So do you think this is an imperative that uh, <laughs> gets our attention? You bet it does. Not only do we have the principle of imminency at work, but we have the mandate to be on the alert. We are commanded to be on the alert. Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3. Revelation 16, 15. Uh, the Pauline uses, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Colossians 4, 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and verse 10. Um, in the book of Acts, Acts 20, 31. Paul's farewell message to the elders of Ephesus, warning them to be on the alert. To look out amongst themselves. For among your own selves will arise men. See, they're not worried about strangers coming in teaching goofy stuff. Paul says, you guys look out for you guys. When one of you guys gets wrapped up in false doctrine. And then you got the, uh, the uses here in the Gospels. Matthew 24, 42 and 43, we're looking at today. Comes back again in Matthew twenty five thirteen. Comes back again in Matthew twenty six. So let's look at these. Matthew twenty five thirteen. This is the conclusion of the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins. 
Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This imperative for readiness and uh, alertfulness, this uh, imperative will be expanded in the parable of the virgins. Over to chapter 26. Verse 38, he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. This is Jesus in the garden. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and Gregoreto with me. Remain here and keep watch. Be on the alert with me. More often than not, our imperatives to be on the alert are in a prayer context. I'm thankful that we've seen an increase in our corporate prayer meetings here lately. I hope to see that increase even more. While we pray for one another, but we also pray with one another. And we have the privilege to be able to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And Jesus uh, asked for this. It's interesting, out of the twelve, He only was able to take three of them. And, uh, and they keep falling asleep. <laughs> All right. So that's verse uh, 38, comes back in verse 40, comes back in verse 41. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, So you men could not Gregorette with me for one hour. You could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if this was a priority for the Lord, and then, you know, the night before he goes to the cross, you think it's important for us? All right, then the parallels for this in Mark 13 and Mark 14 match up real well with what we just we're looking at in uh, Matthew 24 and Matthew 26. Uh, Luke 12:37, I think, is also a parallel to this. Let me just double check that on my way to Acts. Luke 12:37. Yes, <clears throat> we have a wedding feast and we have slaves that are ready being dressed in readiness, keeping your lamps lit. All right. Whether he comes in the second watch <coughs> or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. In the second watch or even the third. You say, well, come on. How long, how long does this take? How long do I got to wait? You know? You think the Lord could teach me this patience lesson just a little bit quicker. You know, um, in our humanity, we we are very discontent with the duration of certain testings. And we like to think that they ought to be done sooner rather than later. Well, what if the test isn't designed for sooner rather than later? What if the test is a long-haul test? That woman with a hemorrhage, 18 years. I don't want a test that's going to last 18 years. <laughs> God doesn't ask what you want. He, he said, run with endurance the race set before you. There are long-term tests. I knew a lady. You know a lady. Is she, is she still alive? Is Anne LaCroix still alive? No. She is. Okay. But her husband's in heaven. No, her husband's in hell. Okay. This woman prayed for nearly 80 years on behalf of the, the man she was married to. Are you willing to pray 80 years? 80. 80 when you get married as a teenager and, and then you're in your 90s, you've been married a while. <laughs> and uh, 
All those years I knew her growing up. And then and then I'm overseas in the military and I get a postcard and a letter and a, on my birthday a note every year and praying for you. Man, that makes you feel good. <laughs> Man, a prayer hero like this is praying for me. This is a great woman of faith. So um, in any event, I didn't realize she was still alive. That's good to know. Um, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. We see it here. All right, over to the book of Acts, Acts 20, 31. As I mentioned, this is Paul. We'll see this in our Corinthian study as well tonight. We see this in the process of Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Paul is so anxious. He's so eager. And uh, he's in such haste in Miletus, he can't even go from the port of Miletus inland to the city of Ephesus. From Miletus, he sends to Ephesus. He makes them come to him. He calls to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. All right. And uh, when they had come to him, he said, and he starts to warn them here. And this whole message has this power. And um, this message, this chapter is going to become a a centerpiece of of an ecclesiology study I I really would like to put together between now and the end of the year, if we have time, if the Lord allows it to happen. Um. When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Tears and trials. It's a description of the ministry, isn't it? How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Not popular. Profitable. And in some cases, when you say something that's needed, people aren't going to like it. And they're going to react. And they're going to they're gonna get mad. They're going to say, oh, the pastor's picking on me or whatever. And so instead of profiting from what they should be profiting from, they react and decide that uh, they need to find another church. Teaching you publicly and from house to house. You've got public words that the whole congregation gets, and then you get private words from house to house. And uh, both sides that take place. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And to come back tonight, and we'll be addressing this more completely that uh, the Holy Spirit wasn't lying to him, but he wasn't hearing. He heard what the Spirit was saying, but he wasn't listening to what the Holy Spirit was saying. And, and if you've ever, you understand the difference between hearing and listening. You've had children, right? Or understanding, right? If, if you had teenage children, they heard you, but they weren't listening. Okay? Or husbands. There are a lot of housewives here tonight, this morning. They heard you, but were they really listening? Okay? And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching in the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. If you hide from a doctrine or run from a doctrine or you choose to omit something, blood's on your hands. But if you give the whole counsel and you've warned them, then, uh, then blood's on their hands. They've been taught and they're accountable. 
And then he says, here's the where the imperative comes in. Be on guard. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And I can't tell you how many years I went just reading be on guard for all the flock. It doesn't say be on guard for all the flock. It says be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Put it in the proper order. And then notice where the bad guys are coming from in verse 30. It's and from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things. So it says be on guard for yourselves in verse 28. And the context remains there. The savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock in verse 29. From among your own selves men will arise. Speaking, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I tell you, when a, when a teacher starts getting wrapped up over who his disciples are and how many he has and in competition drawing some away so that these sheep belong to me and they don't belong to you, look out. Absolutely look out. They're, they're Christ's sheep anyway. And 1 Peter 5 says it's Christ's flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Nor yet is lording it over them, but proving to be examples to the flock. Proving to be examples to those allotted to your charge. And so, you know, I'm not about trying to take sheep from somebody else or giving them away. Or am I threatened or am I scared if somebody says, well, I might just have to leave the church. Well, Christ is head of the church. He's in charge. And if He assigns you here, I will continue to shepherd. If He moves you elsewhere, I'll thank Him for His faithfulness. If you defy Him and move yourself elsewhere, contrary to what He's designed, I'll pray for you. Now, be on guard. Be on guard. Be on guard. The adversary, this is how He works. This is how He works. And He poisons minds. And he gets shepherds where they're not thinking clearly. And he gets sheep where they're not thinking clearly. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I do not cease to admonish each one with tears. The tears come because the pastor faithfully admonishes and the sheep just blows it off. And says, yeah, well, that's, that's his opinion. Who cares? And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace. See, once... The word's been taught. You're accountable. And so you're commended to God and to the word of his grace. The word that you might have mocked, you might have dismissed, you might have rejected. But that word will hold you accountable because the word will not return void. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Notice now, able to build you up. Able. It doesn't mean it automatically does. The word cannot be, the word can be not profitable when it's not united by faith, when it's not with humility received and implanted, which is able to save your souls. Don't, don't ever, ever get confused over the able indications that we have. It's able to build you up and give you the inheritance. It's able to. When it doesn't, it's not the Word's fault. It's your fault. It's your accountability. It's your pride that has failed to accept the rebuke. All right. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, verse 35, 
You must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Are those words read in your Bible? Okay. So uh, what, what verse was he quoting there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? None. Zero. That's right. That is a, that is a quote. That is a quotation of the Lord that it was not recorded by any of the uh, gospel authors. But it was, uh, it was spoken by the Lord, recorded by Paul, or recorded by Luke, in a uh, verbal ser- a sermon that Paul delivered here in Ephesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said many things that weren't recorded in the Gospels. He did many miracles that were not recorded in the Gospels. Imagine there are a lot of sayings that Jesus said that uh, didn't make it into the canon of Scripture, but this one did, and it's, it's an interesting place for... Uh, the quotation of the Lord here. All right. Be on the alert. Do local churches need to be on the alert? Absolutely. Do they need to be on the alert for issues related to their spiritual leadership? You better believe it. Absolutely better believe it. Do they need to be on the alert when it comes to um, rebellious sheep? You better believe it. And all these things. This is how the adversary is at work. All right. All of this uh, obviously uh, was an impact not only here, but uh, came back, uh, comes back again in terms of the uh, pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, where the verb gregoreo does not occur, but the uh, related terms do in uh, with respect to Tita, uh, Timothy's instructions in dealing with false teachers. First uh, Corinthians sixteen thirteen. Let's look at this one. First Corinthians sixteen thirteen. The conclusion of the book of 1 Corinthians. A five-fold imperative that starts with be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. And they're all connected together. If you're not standing firm in the faith, you're not going to be on the alert. Act like men. That includes you women. (laughs) All right. Act like men. Be strong, in passive, be strengthened. Not going to be your strength. Don't impress God with how macho you are to handle whatever task. Be strengthened. Receive His strength for the enduring of all testing. And let all that you do be done in love. So fivefold imperative that encapsulates the book of 1 Corinthians. It's the summary of 1 Corinthians. The conclusion of 1 Corinthians. Might even be a, a useful benediction. I should start using that. At the conclusion of uh, every Bible class. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So there we have it. The imperative for the, the ongoing imperative for the church age. We are to be on the alert. It is a, uh, especially vital as it pertains to imminency. Colossians 4.2. We saw the Lord in His uh, prayer context for being on the alert. Same thing comes back here. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the Word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. So devote yourselves to prayer. Remember what a devotion is? 
Devotion is something that you sacrifice other things for. A devotion is something that takes priority, that doesn't uh, take second place, third place, fourth place to two or three or five other things. That's a devotion. And prayer is supposed to be a devotion. This is where we keep alert in it with the attitude of thanksgiving. I mean, I'm, I'm real thankful. I mean, with the fires going on, yes. That's a sense of urgency, of course. But does it bring into focus the idea that, well, this is a day that I'm really, really, really going to have extra prayer and then other days I just kind of get lazy? Should I not be in a daily prayer devotion anyway? Daily, more at, more at morning, at noon, and at night, the psalmist says. Um, and do I have a consistent, fervent prayer? Am I consistently in prayer? All right. First Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and verse 10. I think it's important in light of the Olivet Discourse that we recognize that eschatological doctrines are vulnerable to false teaching. They're vulnerable to manipulation. Uh, people can get all into sensationalism and get people tripped up. And we're not to be led astray in these realms. We're to be very clear in our eschatology. We have rapture information in chapter 4. We have second advent information in chapter 5. And we should not be confused about us versus them. And uh, they have a full, they, they received a full eschatology when Paul was there. As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. That's chapter 5 and verse 1. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. They had a full development on the day of the Lord. They had a full development on the rapture. When you look at the rapture teaching of chapter 4, Paul said, you know this already. All right. Now notice, while they, do you see all the they's in verse 3? While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Remember all the birth pangs language we looked at in the prophets in the Old Testament in the Lord's message on the Olivet Discourse. This is in total agreement with that. When Paul starts to talk about Second Advent and, and these things, he uses the, the labor pangs, pains imagery. But that's all them. Them, 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 them. But you, brethren, <laughs> you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're a church-age believer. Second Advent has nothing to do with you. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Since we are children of light, we're church-age saints, we ought to walk appropriately with a full eschatology, a full knowledge of God's plan and purpose, where we fit in that plan and purpose. We shouldn't be worried about Second Advent. We shouldn't be worried about Antichrist. It's interesting, if they'd uh, really embraced chapter 5 here, there wouldn't have been a need for 2 Thessalonians to be written. But sadly, in between First and Second Thessalonians, some false teachers came in and said, oh, wait a minute, Paul was wrong. You missed the rapture. Day of the Lord's upon you. And all kinds of people got all weird. Okay? <laughs> you know, and why is that? 
because somebody said it on the radio. I mean, pastor, I know you taught this, but, 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 uh, somebody gave me this book and I'm really worried. Can you read this? Can you tell me what is this? What's this about? Well, here's another book. Let's read this one. Let's uh, let's not be quickly shaken from our composure or disturbed from a pop culture sensational book or from a website or from a radio program. Not get confused based on certain things. Verse 10, likewise, has this... Uh, and, and that's an interesting use there because it's translated awake. Whether we are awake or asleep. Whether we are gregoroing or we're asleep at the switch. And remember in the parable, it was when the men were asleep that the adversary was able to come in and sow the sow the uh, seeds for the tares so as you evaluate your christian walk in this uh present evil age are you awake or are you asleep are you on the alert are you are you uh devoted to prayer the attitude of prayer of watchfulness or are you just living social life like the days of noah yeah, the church is kind of nice. There's friendly people there, and it's a nice break. <laughs> All right. Be on the alert and uh, be prepared. We all get to become Boy Scouts now, and the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Um, interestingly enough, we have the adjective for prepared, and the actual imperative is from ginemai, to become, to become something that you're not. Ginemai. Ginemai hetoimos. And so uh, under point two, I just want to focus on hetoimos, not the ginemai part. But the ginemai part's interesting. The idea of becoming something you're not already, as opposed to continuously being. And that's interesting. But ginemai. The imperative of Ginemai. Hetoimos, prepared. Uh, Hetoimos is H-E-T-O-I-M-O-S. Hetoimos. Accent on the first syllable, so it's Hetomos. It only has 17 uses. It's fairly short, 2092. Um, and as I'm out of time, we'll have to pick up on this next week. I'm not going to take you through a lot of Hetoimos, Hetoimazo verses, but the idea of an imperative of ginemai to be something, to become something. The difference between Amy and ginemai, the difference between being and becoming. Uh, just chew on that. Between now and next Wednesday, I'll come back to this. And you say, well, once I get prepared, am I not? is it not fair to say that I now am prepared? Can you be more prepared tomorrow? Can you be more prepared the day after that? That's right. And so uh, it's interesting uh, the idea, you know, when a man asks me if he's prepared for ordination, things like that. Well, you're more prepared than you were. Um, you're not as prepared as you will be next year. If we fail to ordain you and you keep preparing 10 years from now, you'll be more prepared than you are today. Uh, but is there a point where you are more prepared and then all of a sudden you don't have any more time anymore? It's upon you. And you're as prepared as you're going to be because there you are. Okay? It's like any testing, really. I wish I was more prepared for this test. Well, 
too late, you're here. <laughs> the test is upon you. How have you prepared yourself up till now? That's what imminency does for you. Imminency says, all right, I need to get more prepared. If I, and if I think that I'm prepared, that's let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Um, if it's not today, then I've got another day tomorrow to be prepared for. And then another tomorrow to be prepared for. And I love the fact that the imperative here is a ginemai, ganesta, today always be preparing to become what you're not prepared so we'll talk about that father thank you for your truth thank you for your faithfulness thank you for this concept of imminency and i pray of course our application is the rapture and i pray as we focus on that that we uh, not lose sight of the fact that the the primary imperatives of the imminent rapture are that we are watchful and that we are becoming what we are not now becoming prepared and so I thank you that today can be a, a day of preparation. And uh, I just pray that you would take hold of the teaching that's gone forth. Allow us to receive it with humility. Allow us to receive it. Let us search the Scriptures, not because Pastor Bob said so, but because your Word says so, Father. Let us search the Scriptures, see if these things are so, uh, humbly before your face, seeking your will. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. The name is assumed because of their watchfulness, because of their uh, diligence on, in being on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. No one knows. The Son of Man, the angels in heaven, only the Father. And since we don't know, since we don't have a calendar, we need to be on the alert. Now, let me first of all say this has direct application to Second Advent. This is not for us. We're not looking for any of these things. But we do have an application to make, and we do have imperatives to be on the alert elsewhere. Okay. And so because we have imperatives to be on the alert, we can make secondary application of the text that we have here. This is teaching the doctrine of imminency. We have our own application of imminency to make as it pertains to the rapture. So we, we're not going to be on the alert for the second advent. We're not going to be on the alert for um, the days of Noah. We're not going to be on the alert for the sign of the Son of Man. Uh, we're not going to be on the alert for the abomination of desolation. We're not on the alert for Antichrist. But we are on the alert and more so because we have no signs that will lead up to, to our status. We're already there. We're already at the alert status. And so we must be diligent. We must be diligent. The day and the hour of Christ's second advent is only known by God the Father. The day and the hour of Christ's second advent is only known by God the Father. He says that in verse 36. That's indicated here as well in verses 42 through 44. Now at the moment Jesus spoke this, he was still in his earthly incarnation. He was still in his humility. Um, I was asked, do I think that was the, that's the case now? Is he still ignorant now, seated at the right hand of the Father? Uh, or was there some point of time after his ascension when he was seated that uh, he was granted this? Does he know today, for example, uh, when this is going to be. I believe he does. I believe that, that where he had laid aside his privileges, that, that activity ended when he ascended to the Father, was presented before the Father in victory. Uh, Jesus asked the Father, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. And in fact, the Father not only restored that glory, but actually bestowed upon him greater glory, bestowed upon him a name above every name that has been given. And so I think together with that, the kenosis is complete and that 
um, that he has, once again, his full use of, his full omniscience and all the the uh, intimacy with the Father and the, the complete plan today. But when he spoke these words in Matthew 24, this was still a true, uh, a true statement. The day and the hour of Christ's second advent is only known by God the Father. And so, you know, people today that write these books and claim that they know these dates, they claim that they know these, when it's, the Bible says no one knows. And, and the most clever of them, I'll tell you this, I, there's, a, there's a boy I grew up with who went to uh, seminary the same time I did. There were three of us at that time. Three young men, 21 years old, all said, I've got the gift of pastor-teacher. And uh, two of them went to Multnomah in Portland, and and I came here. Um, But one of them actually has specialized on this for the last 20 years. And this has been his focus of research, and this has been his, his, uh, his, his whole study has been consumed in this realm. And he's done a lot of work on it. Very valuable, useful work on it. But what breaks my heart is when he crosses the line and starts to date the date and and uh i'm convinced he can't do that now he's got an explanation for this no one knows and i find it's interesting it's it's um it's uh he realizes it's a weakness of his of his entire thesis and so he addresses it he says yes this is a weakness but here's the answer and so he believes he's got a a uh, an answer for it and uh and i think that it's uh it's weak so in any event um that's what that is but how many believers are doing that not just him i'm not i'm not criticizing him but i'm I'm saying that a lot of believers are wrapped up in trying to date the rapture and the whole point is is that because it's not dateable day by day moment by moment we're living as if it's today we've got to live with that principle of imminency as if it's today okay Under any application of imminency, any application of imminency, the primary imperatives are watchfulness and readiness. Watchfulness and readiness. That's why I'm glad God's given us this doctrine of readiness here not too long ago. Under any application of imminency, and the Bible has several of them, the primary imperatives are watchfulness and readiness we see it here therefore be on the alert in verse 42 and in verse 44 for this reason you must also be ready hetwe madzo and the imperative of hetwe mas ganes the hetwe mas now as, as, as i said this is not a rapture passage but because the church has the imminent expectation of the rapture we are living under an imminency application. Are we clear on that? All right. The second advent for Israel. Once the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky, they, are, they will at that time operate under an imminency application. Are we clear on that? <laughs> okay. And their application of imminency... It's not our application of imminency, but they are both applications of imminency, and so there are similarities, and we draw these principles together for our understanding. Make sense? All right. Now, prior to the sun, moon, and stars falling and the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky, prior to that, is Israel under an application of imminency? The, The end of the age, the end of the age, right. 
They're not under a principle of imminency until the sign appears in heaven. And the reason why is because they've got so many other things and a sequence of so many other things to be looking for. And so they've got all of the beginning of birth pangs that are going to lead up to the birth pangs. And so they have those things, and as they watch those, they're not really under imminency because the sign hasn't appeared in the, in the sky yet. And, and the, uh, the abomination of desolation hasn't appeared in the, in the temple yet. Or even the, the, the seven-year covenant itself hasn't taken place yet. I think there's going to be believers with insight. They're going to see that treaty sign, and they're going to, they're going to know right then and right there. And they're going to be able to start counting 1,260 days for the first three and a half years. Then they'll see the betrayal. And then they'll be able to start counting. But see, remember, they can't count that second 1,260 days because those get cut short. Now, so they're not under imminency in the beginning of birth pangs. They're not under imminency in the birth pangs. They're not under imminency in the tribulation. But after the tribulation of those days, when the sun, moon, and stars are, are thrown down, when the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky. Now they're under imminency. Realize now, understand the parable of the fig tree, realize now that Jesus Christ is standing at the door. He is near right at the door. Okay? Then they're under a principle of imminency. And only then are they under a principle of imminency. Now, uh, I said there are several. Besides the rapture and the second heaven of Israel, what other applications of imminency does the Bible describe? Thought about that at all? Do you think the days of Noah? Do you think the days of Noah was an application of imminency? We know that he preached for an entire year, but did he know it was going to be a year at that time? Did the people know it was going to be a year? As he was building that ark, did he know how many days he had left? Did the people know how many days he had left? No, we don't either, no. Um, scripture doesn't say, but the, 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 uh, I believe the death of Methuselah was the sign. And uh, this was how the rabbis taught it, and this is how I think the Scripture bears it out. He died the very year of the... When you, when you add up his age in his 969th year, and when he died that that was the indicator of the, of the, uh, of the flood. And uh, the rabbinic tradition is that was the very day of the flood. <laughs> he died, and with his death, the Lord said, all right, get him on the boat, and he closed the door. Okay. Anyway, operating in the principles of imminency, I think there was also imminency as it pertained to the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ, all this expectation. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. When would that happen? Well, you have 69 sevens to start counting from the issuing of a decree. And they know they're in the 69th. They know they're in the... I mean, they know they, they're counting 65, 66, 67. They're getting closer. All right. Just even for the birth. Even for the birth. Right. Now, week 69 ends with the crucifixion of the Christ, but he obviously has to be born prior to that. So as these sevens were being counted by Israel, there was this expectation, this expectation. And it's, it's interesting. You read the apocryphal literature, the intertestamental li literature, you know, because they're, they're Bible closed with Malachi. But you get all of these apocalypses being written and all of these other uh, uh, expectation of the imminent arrival of the Christ. They were living under imminency. 
And then the sign of the, of the, the birth appears and it brings the Magi from the east. We saw his sign. So there was an application of imminency. And uh, so the flood, the first advent, rapture, second event, there's at least those four and possibly additional applications of imminency that, uh, that could be looked at. Now, the, um, the primary imperatives are watchfulness and readiness. And that's what we see here. Let's start with watchfulness. Subpoint one, Gregoreo. Gregoreo. 22 New Testament uses. G-R-E, that's the long E of the Ada. So gamma rho eta, gamma, Doug, G-R-E-G-O-R-E-O, G-R-E-G-O-R-E-O, Gregoreo, number 1127, has 22 New Testament uses. Uh, the bulk of them are in Matthew and Mark. Uh, in the New Testament, we've got several Pauline uses. 1 Peter 5.8 might jump out at you as uh, Peter's only use on it. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour. So do you think this is an imperative that uh, <laughs> gets our attention? You bet it does. Not only do we have the principle of imminency at work, but we have the mandate to be on the alert. We are commanded to be on the alert. Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3. Revelation 16.15. Uh, the Pauline uses, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Colossians 4, 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, and verse 10. Um, in the book of Acts, Acts 20, 31, Paul's farewell message to the elders of Ephesus, warning them to be on the alert, to look out amongst themselves. For among your own selves will arise men. See, they're not worried about strangers coming in teaching goofy stuff. Paul says, you guys look out for you guys. When one of you guys gets wrapped up in false doctrine. And then you got the, uh, the uses here in the Gospels. Matthew 24, 42 and 43, what we're looking at today. Comes back again in Matthew 25, 13. Comes back again in Matthew 26. So let's look at these. Matthew 25, 13. This is the conclusion of the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This imperative for readiness and uh, alertfulness, this uh, imperative will be expanded in the parable of the virgins. Over to chapter 26. Verse 38, he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. This is Jesus in the garden. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and Gregoreo with me. Remain here and Keep watch. Be on the alert with me. More often than not, our imperatives to be on the alert are in a prayer context. So I'm thankful that we've seen an increase in our corporate prayer meetings here lately. I hope to see that increase even more while we pray for one another, but we also pray with one another. And we have the privilege to be able to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And Jesus uh, asked for this. It's interesting, out of the twelve, he only was able to take three of them. And, uh, and they keep falling asleep. <laughs> All right. So that's verse uh, 38, comes back in verse 40, comes back in verse 41. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not Gregorette with me for one hour. You could not keep watch with me for one hour. 
Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So if this was a priority for the Lord, and then, you know, the night before he goes to the cross, you think it's important for us? All right, then the parallels for this in Mark 13 and Mark 14 match up real well with what we just were looking at in uh, Matthew 24 and Matthew 26. Uh, Luke 12:37, I think, is also a parallel to this. Let me just double check that on my way to Acts. Luke 12:37. Yes, <coughs> we have a wedding feast, and we have slaves that are ready, being dressed in readiness, keeping your lamps lit. All right. Whether he comes in the second watch (coughs) or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. In the second watch or even the third. Say, well, come on, how long long does this take? How long do I got to wait? You know? You think the Lord could teach me this patience lesson just a little bit quicker. You know, um... In our humanity, we we are very discontent with the duration of certain testings. And we like to think that they ought to be done sooner rather than later. Well, what if the test isn't designed for sooner rather than later? What if the test is a long-haul test? That woman with the hemorrhage, 18 years. Oh, I don't want a test that's going to last 18 years. <laughs> God doesn't ask what you want. He, he said, run with endurance the race set before you. There are long-term tests. I knew a lady. You know a lady. Is she, is she still alive? Is Anne LaCroix still alive? No. She is. Okay. But her husband's in heaven. No, her husband's in hell. Okay. This woman prayed for nearly 80 years on behalf of the, the man she was married to. Are you willing to pray 80 years? 80. 80. When you get married as a teenager and, and then you're in your 90s, you've been married a while. <laughs> and uh, all those years I knew her growing up. And then, and then I'm overseas in the military and I get a postcard and a letter and a, on my birthday a note every year and praying for you. Man, that makes you feel good. <laughs> Man, a prayer hero like this is praying for me. This is a great woman of faith. So um, in any event, I didn't realize she was still alive. That's good to know. Um. Be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert. We see it here. All right, over to the book of Acts, Acts 20, 31. As I mentioned, this is Paul. We'll see this in our Corinthian study as well tonight. We see this in the process of Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Paul is so anxious, he's so eager. And uh, he's in such haste in Miletus, he can't even go from the port of Miletus inland to the city of Ephesus. From Miletus, he sends to Ephesus, he makes them come to him. He calls to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. All right. And uh, when they had come to him, he said, and he starts to warn them here. And this whole message has this power. And um, this message, this chapter is going to become a, a centerpiece of, of a uh, ecclesiology study. I, I really would like to put together between now and the end of the year, if we have time, if the Lord allows it to happen. Um 
when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Tears and trials. It's a description of the ministry, isn't it? How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, not popular, profitable. And in some cases, when you say something that's needed, people aren't going to like it and they're going to react and they're going to they're going to get mad. They're going to say, oh, the pastor's picking on me or whatever. And so instead of profiting from what they should be profiting from, they react and decide that uh, they need to find another church teaching you publicly and from house to house you got public words that the whole congregation gets and then you get private words from house to house and uh, both sides that take place solemnly testifying to both jews and greeks of repentance toward god and faith in our lord jesus christ and now behold bound in spirit i'm on my way to jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there except that the holy spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And to come back tonight and we'll be addressing this more completely. That uh, the Holy Spirit wasn't lying to him but he wasn't hearing. He heard what the Spirit was saying but he wasn't listening to what the Holy Spirit was saying. And, and if you've ever, you understand the difference between hearing and listening. You've had children, right? Or understanding, Right. If you had teenage children, they heard you, but they weren't listening. Okay? Or husbands. There are a lot of housewives here tonight, this morning. They heard you, but were they really listening? Okay? And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching in the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. If you hide from a doctrine or run from a doctrine or you choose to omit something, blood's on your hands. But if you give the whole counsel and you've warned them, then, uh, then blood's on their hands. They've been taught and they're accountable. And then he says, here's the where the imperative comes in. Be on guard. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And I can't tell you how many years I went just reading Be On Guard for All the Flock. It doesn't say Be On Guard for All the Flock. It says Be On Guard for Yourselves and for All the Flock. Put it in the proper order. And then notice where the bad guys are coming from in verse 30. It's and from among your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things. So it says, be on guard for yourselves in verse 28. And the context remains there. The savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock in verse 29. From among your own selves, men will arise. Speaking, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I tell you, when a, when a teacher starts getting wrapped up over who his disciples are and how many he has... And in competition, drawing some away so that these sheep belong to me and they don't belong to you. Look out. Absolutely look out. They're the Christ sheep anyway. And First Peter 5 says it's Christ's flock. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Nor yet as lording it over them, but proving to be examples to the flock. 
proving to be examples to those allotted to your charge. And so, you know, I'm not about trying to take sheep from somebody else or giving them away. Or am I threatened or am I scared if somebody says, well, I might just have to leave the church. Well, Christ is head of the church. He's in charge. And if he assigns you here, I will continue to shepherd. If he moves you elsewhere, I'll thank him for his faithfulness. If you defy him and move yourself elsewhere, contrary to what he's designed, I'll pray for you. Now, be on guard, be on guard, be on guard. The adversary, this is how he works. This is how he works. And he poisons minds. And he gets shepherds where they're not thinking clearly. And he gets sheep where they're not thinking clearly. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I do not cease to admonish each one with tears. The tears come because the pastor faithfully admonishes and the sheep just blows it off and says, yeah, well, that's, that's his opinion. Who cares? And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace. See, once the word's been taught, you're accountable. And so you're commended to God. And to the word of his grace, the word that you might have mocked, you might have dismissed, you might have rejected, but that word will hold you accountable because the word will not return void. Which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. Notice now, able to build you up. Able. It doesn't mean it automatically does. The word cannot be, the word can be not profitable. When it's not united by faith, when it's not with humility received and implanted, which is able to save your souls. Don't, don't ever, ever get confused over the able indications that we have. It's able to build you up and give you the inheritance. It's able to. When it doesn't, it's not the Word's fault. It's your fault. It's your accountability. It's your pride that has failed to accept the rebuke. All right. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, verse 35, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Are those words read in your Bible? Okay. So uh, what, what verse was he quoting there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? None, zero, that's right. That is, a, that is a quote. That is a quotation of the Lord that it was not recorded by any of the uh, gospel authors. But it was, uh, it was spoken by the Lord, recorded by Paul, or recorded by Luke, in a uh, verbal ser- a sermon that Paul delivered here in Ephesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said many things that weren't recorded in the Gospels. He did many miracles that were not recorded in the Gospels. Imagine there are a lot of sayings that Jesus said that uh, didn't make it into the canon of Scripture, but this one did, and it's, it's an interesting place for uh, a quotation of the Lord here. All right. Be on the alert. Do local churches need to be on the alert? Absolutely. Do they need to be on the alert for... Issues related to their spiritual leadership. You better believe it. Absolutely better believe it. Do they need to be on the alert when it comes to um, rebellious sheep? You better believe it. And all these things. This is how the adversary is at work. 
All right. All of this uh, obviously uh, was an impact not only here, but uh, came back, uh, comes back again in terms of the uh, pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, where the verb gregoreo does not occur, but the uh, related terms do in, uh, with respect to Titus, uh, Timothy's instructions in dealing with false teachers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.13, let's look at this one. 1 Corinthians 16.13. The conclusion of the book of 1 Corinthians. A five-fold imperative that starts with be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. And they're all connected together. If you're not standing firm in the faith, you're not going to be on the alert. Act like men. That includes you women. (laughs) All right. Act like men. Be strong, in passive, be strengthened. Not going to be your strength. Don't impress God with how macho you are to handle whatever test. Be strengthened. Receive His strength for the enduring of all testing. And let all that you do be done in love. It's a five-fold imperative that encapsulates the book of 1 Corinthians. It's the summary of 1 Corinthians. The conclusion of 1 Corinthians. Might even be a, a useful benediction. I should start using that at the conclusion of uh, every Bible class. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. So there we have it. The imperative for the, the ongoing imperative for the church age. We are to be on the alert. It is a, uh, especially vital as it pertains to imminency. Colossians 4.2. We saw the Lord in his uh, prayer context for being on the alert. Same thing comes back here. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been in prison. So devote yourselves to prayer. Remember what a devotion is? Devotion is something that you sacrifice other things for. A devotion is something that takes priority, that doesn't uh, take second place, third place, fourth place to two or three or five other things. That's a devotion. And prayer is supposed to be a devotion. This is where we keep alert in it with the attitude of thanksgiving. I, I'm, I'm real thankful. I need, with the fires going on, yes. That's a sense of urgency, of course. But does it bring into focus the idea that, well, this is a day that I'm really, really, really going to have extra prayer, and then other days I just kind of get lazy? Should I not be in a daily prayer devotion anyway? Daily, more at, more at morning, at noon, and at night, the psalmist says. Um, do I have a consistent, fervent prayer? Am I consistently in prayer? All right. First Thessalonians 5, verse 6 and verse 10. I think it's important in light of the Olivet Discourse that we recognize that eschatological doctrines are vulnerable to false teaching. They're vulnerable to manipulation. Uh, people can get all into sensationalism and get people tripped up. 
And we're not to be led astray in these realms. We're to be very clear in our eschatology. We have rapture information in chapter 4. We have second advent information in chapter 5. And we should not be confused about us versus them. And uh, they have a full, they, they received a full eschatology when Paul was there. As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. That's chapter 5 and verse 1. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. They had a full development on the day of the Lord. They had a full development on the rapture. When you look at the rapture teaching of chapter 4, Paul said, you know this already. All right. Now notice, while they, do you see all the they's in verse 3? While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Remember all the birth pangs language we looked at in the prophets in the Old Testament in the Lord's message on the Olivet Discourse. This is in total agreement with that. When Paul starts to talk about Second Advent and, and these things, he uses the, the labor pangs, pains imagery. But that's all them. Them, 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 them. But you, brethren, <laughs> you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're a church-age believer. Second Advent has nothing to do with you. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Since we are children of light, we're church-age saints, we ought to walk appropriately with a full eschatology, a full knowledge of God's plan and purpose, where we fit in that plan and purpose. We shouldn't be worried about Second Advent. We shouldn't be worried about Antichrist. It's interesting, if they'd uh, really embraced chapter 5 here, there wouldn't have been a need for 2 Thessalonians to be written. But sadly, in between First and Second Thessalonians, some false teachers came in and said, oh, wait a minute, Paul was wrong, you missed the rapture, day of the Lord's upon you. And all kinds of people got all weird, okay? <laughs> you know, and why is that? Because somebody said it on the radio? I mean, Pastor, I know you taught this, but, 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 uh, somebody gave me this book, and I'm really worried. Can you read this? Can you tell me? What is this, what's this about? Huh. Well, here's another book. Let's read this one. Let's, uh, let's not be quickly shaken from our composure or disturbed from a pop culture sensational book or from a website or from a radio program. Not get confused based on certain things. Verse 10, likewise, has this... Uh, and, and that's an interesting use there because it's translated awake. Whether we are awake or asleep. Whether we are Gregoroing or we're asleep at the switch. And remember in the parable, it was when the men were asleep that the adversary was able to come in and sow the... Sow the uh, seeds for the tares. So as you evaluate your Christian walk in this uh, present evil age, are you awake or are you asleep? Are you on the alert? Are you, are you uh, devoted to prayer, the attitude of, prayer, of watchfulness? Or are you just living social life like the days of Noah? Yeah, the church is kind of nice. There's friendly people there, and it's a 
Nice break. <laughs> All right. Be on the alert and uh, be prepared. We all get to become Boy Scouts now, and the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Um, interestingly enough, we have the adjective for prepared, and the actual imperative is from ginemai, to become, to become something that you're not. Ginemai. Ginemai hetoimas. And so, uh, under point two, I just want to focus on hetoimas, not the ginemai part. But the ginemai part's interesting. The idea of becoming something you're not already, as opposed to continuously being. And that's interesting. But ginemai, the imperative of ginemai. Hetoimas, prepared. Uh, hetoimos is H-E-T-O-I-M-O-S. Hetoimos. Accent on the first syllable, so it's hetomos. It only has 17 uses. It's fairly short, 2092. Um, and as I'm out of time, we'll have to pick up on this next week. I'm not going to take you through a lot of hetoimos, hetoimazo verses, but the idea of uh, an imperative of ginamai to be something, to become something. The difference between Amy and ginamai, the difference between being and becoming. Uh, just chew on that. Between now and next Wednesday, I'll come back to this. And you say, well, once I get prepared, am I not, is it not fair to say that I now am prepared? Can you be more prepared tomorrow? Can you be more prepared the day after that? That's right. And so uh, it's interesting uh, the idea, you know, when a man asks me if he's prepared for ordination, things like that. Well, you're more prepared than you were. Um, you're not as prepared as you will be next year. If we fail to ordain you and you keep preparing 10 years from now, you'll be more prepared than you are today. Uh, but is there a point where you are more prepared and then all of a sudden you don't have any more time anymore? It's upon you. And you're as prepared as you're going to be because there you are. Okay? It's like any testing, really. I wish I was more prepared for this test. Well, too late. You're here. <laughs> the test is upon you. How have you prepared yourself up till now? That's what imminency does for you. Imminency says, all right, I need to get more prepared. If I, and if I think that I'm prepared, that's let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Um, if it's not today, then I've got another day tomorrow to be prepared for. And then another tomorrow to be prepared for. And I love the fact that the imperative here is a ginemai, ganesta, today, always be preparing to become what you're not prepared. So we'll talk about that. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this concept of imminency. And I pray, of course, our application is the rapture. And I pray as we focus on that, that we uh, not lose sight of the fact that the, the primary imperatives of the imminent rapture are that we are watchful and that we are becoming what we are not now, becoming prepared. And so I thank you that today can be a, a day of preparation. And uh, I just pray that you would take hold of the teaching that's gone forth. Allow us to receive it with humility. Allow us to receive it. Let us search the scriptures, not because Pastor Bob said so, but because your word says so, Father. Let us search the scriptures, see if these things are so, uh, humbly before your face, seeking your will. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.